I invite you to turn with me today to the book of John, chapter 7. John, chapter 7. We're going to continue on looking at the book of John. Uh, This will put us, well, in a few weeks, this will put us about a third of the way through, chapter-wise, the book of John, as there are 21 chapters there, uh, here in this gospel. And we have continued to see time and again that there is only and always ever life in Jesus, the Son of God. That is why John wrote this gospel, that we may believe in him. And over the last few weeks, we have seen that there is a choice that the gospel of John, that the, that the gospel of who Jesus is, that the truth of who Jesus is, there is a choice that that brings us all to in our lives. And that is whether or not we will believe and place our trust in him or not. And last week, we of course saw there were many disciples who turned away. Those who, who claimed to follow him, but didn't. At the end of the day, when they had to make a choice about who Jesus was, they turned away from him. And so now in John chapter 7, today we'll see this idea of when the time is right in Jesus' ministry, um, as things begin to shift forward a little bit in the timeline of the book of John. John writes, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, and he did not want to walk in Jude- for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea. That your disciples may see, may also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, and its works are evil. You go up to this feast, I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet finally come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Father, we ask now that you would quiet our hearts and minds, you would set aside distractions, and you would help us for the next few minutes just to to behold you and your word, to see you as you are, high and lifted up, our God, who has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the redeemer of us from sin. And we pray that today you would have freedom to do your will in our hearts. You would make us more like Jesus Christ. You would show us the hope of the gospel for one who may be here today who has not trusted you in Savior. For Christians, that you would show us the need to continually live in your strength and your power. That we may live in a way that honors you and pleases you consistently saying no to sin and yes to serving you in your strength. We'll give you all the glory and the honor for what you do here today. In your name we pray. Amen. Do you remember when you were growing up and you had to wait for something to happen that you hadn't been given a timeline for? 
Your parents just said something like, well, it'll happen eventually, or when the time is right, you know, someday we will do this. And you just wanted that day to be today, right? Or that moment to be this moment. But you were only told to wait. And that's a very exciting, but at the same time, almost unbearable experience. Spiritually, we can feel that way in our lives. We've, we've prayed to the Lord, and we haven't received an answer. We've asked God about something going on in our lives, and he hasn't seemed to give us an answer yet. And we feel that God, well, the time for that answer is now. This is the time you are supposed to do something about that. But we come to realize, the longer we walk with God, that God's time is often not our time. And we must learn to trust him, waiting for his perfect timing in our lives. When Jesus was here on earth, he operated on the Father's timetable. He continued to teach the truth of the gospel established in himself, but he did so in God's perfect way and according to God's perfect plan for redemption. And as John chapter 7 opens, we see the timing and the motives of Jesus' ministry being questioned by those who were skeptics of that ministry. But we also see Jesus continuing to proclaim the message of the truth. And what we see here is Jesus' declaration of the truth of God Expose man's sin, and we deliver God's plan of redemption at the perfect time. You cannot give the message of the gospel apart from understanding that man has a sin problem. And that's exactly what Jesus shows here in some of his discussions with his own brothers, um, that, that the things that he shares, the truth that he shares of God has put him at odds with people because he has exposed sin. And it is a fault of ours, a fault of our society, and fault of, maybe we could say, Christianity at large, that people just need to hear that God loves them, and that's all there is to it. Now, God does love us. We're not going to undermine that truth, but understand, God is also just, and we do have a sin problem, and therefore, we have a a need of a Savior. And that's who Jesus came to be. He came to be the Savior of men. He came to redeem those who were lost. And we see this as it begins to develop in this passage, which this passage before us today really is, um, in large part, a transition passage in the Gospel of John. We're transitioning out of, out of Galilee and into Judea. We're transitioning into the latter part of Jesus' ministry. And much of John is taken up with what happens, of course, here after this. Um, this transition from Galilee into Judea. And what you see in verses 1 through 5 here is you see, first of all, the disbelieving advice that Jesus receives from those who familiarly were closest to him. But first, let's observe the setting in verses 1 and 2. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. So here again, in the Gospel of John, You have a fast-forwarding of the timeline. Because John's goal, as stated in in John chapter 20 and in John chapter 21, John's goal and inspired um, um, purpose here from God is not to give an exhaustive all account of what Jesus did, but to show those things which we need in order to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, to approve who he is through those selected inspired instances. 
So between the end of John chapter 6 and the beginning of John chapter 7, there is a period of about six months. So Jesus performed his miraculous feeding of the 5,000 and gave his great discourse on the bread of life that caused a division amongst his hearers, and that was about the time of Passover. Now we're told in verse 2 that the Feast of Tabernacles is upon us. John simply says that during those six months, Jesus walked in Galilee. Now, the implication here is that Jesus traveled and ministered in the area of Galilee, which is in the northern part of the nation of Israel. He did not return to Judea, to the southern part of the nation, because it was there that the Jews, or the religious hierarchy of Israel, were seeking to kill him. They were seeking his death. This came out of his healing of a man on the Sabbath and his claims there to be the Messiah. We read and studied that in John chapter 5. Now in the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we are told what Jesus did during this time. Jesus traveled this area, continuing to perform miracles. He cast out demons. Um, he also, we have there recorded the feeding of the 4,000. But much of that time that Jesus spent in Galilee during those six months, he was spent discipling the 12. We looked at them last week. He told them during this time, for the first time, of his coming rejection, crucifixion, and resurrection. He revealed to Peter, James, and John his glory on what's known as the Mount of Transfiguration. So Jesus' primary focus of these six months was, uh, his primary focus of ministry was on those 12 men, his disciples. Now, he did preach to the masses. He did show himself to many, but he poured his greatest efforts into those 12 men. And Jesus' pattern of personal, intentional discipleship is what fuels our focus as a church to do the same. If you were with us last Sunday night, um, we spent uh, a whole message talking, well, there's actually going to be two messages, but the first message on on discipleship uh, as a ministry focus here at our church. And that's an important thing for a church. Because Jesus would charge the 11 disciples who remained after his resurrection to do the same thing that he had done for them, to go and make disciples. And as Pastor John MacArthur says, the Christian church is in large measure the legacy of those 11 men who faithfully discipled their followers, who discipled others, and so on, down through the centuries to our own day. And so, if we are going to have a church that pleases the Lord, and if we're going to have a church that advances God's kingdom, we must also do what Jesus instructed his disciples to do, to go and make disciples. We must personally engage with other people, winning them to Christ, and personally instructing them in the things of God. We must understand that discipleship is primary to the ministry of any God-honoring and Bible-believing church. A successful church is not measured on how wide its reach is. It is measured on how deep its discipleship goes. My friend, you can find many, many large churches scattered across this country, scattered even across our state, who are a mile wide and an inch deep. That's not the measure of a church. The measure of a church is how deep does that discipleship go. Shallow truth 
produces shallow commitments. Deep connections produce true and faithful disciples as we continue to learn the greater things of God and the truth of his word. And so Jesus invested in these men, for it would be sooner than later that they would witness the death of their Lord. He taught them what would happen and what it meant to be his disciples. And all the while, Jesus avoided those who longed to kill him, for the time of his death had not yet come. And that is one of those things you must understand. Jesus was not afraid to die. He was not afraid of the hard things that, that, that were ahead of him, but the time was not yet right. And now the time for an important feast in Israel has come, and it shifts the focus once again. According to the ancient historian Josephus, the Feast of Tabernacles was the most popular of the three major Jewish feasts, and it fell in what we would know as the September-October time of our calendar, and it was, a part, it was in part a time of thanksgiving and rejoicing after the harvest. This time of year in Israel, the grape and olive harvest would have just been pulled in. And the people would gather to celebrate this, and they would, they would remember God's goodness in the past. And during the seven days of the feast, the people would make themselves booths or tabernacles, tent-like structures out of branches to live in. In fact, the people who lived in the city of Jerusalem would build these on top of their houses. Often those roofs were flat, and they would build these, these structures out on top of their houses, and there they would live during the feast. And this was to commemorate how their ancestors lived in their journey to the promised land. When Israel was freed from Egypt, God using Moses to do so, they lived in these booths, in these tabernacles, these tent-like structures, all through their journeys through the wilderness. And during that feast, they would also have things like a water drawing and lamp lighting rite that would be observed, which Jesus will reference in his forthcoming teachings throughout John chapter 7. So this was one of the three feasts that all Jewish males were required to attend. And so, as his family prepares to go, we see the interaction that takes place between Jesus and his family. Look in verses 3 through 5, and you'll see the family contention that takes place. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. As those in Jesus' family prepare to take the trip to Jerusalem, this is the conversation that takes place between Jesus and his brothers. Now, These, of course, when it mentions his brothers, these are the half-brothers of Jesus. They are the sons of Mary and Joseph who had other children after Jesus was born. But they're half-brothers because Jesus has no earthly father. He was born of the Virgin Mary. Matthew tells us that the names of these brothers are James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or he was also known as Jude. They assume that Jesus will be leaving with them For Jerusalem, and they call for him. What they're doing, these verses are calling on him to change his method of ministry. He's been in Galilee, he's been in the northern part of the the nation, he's been discipling those who are his followers, he's been been teaching those who will come and listen to him. But they assume that that he's now going to come, and now there needs to be a shift. They tell him, 
that he needs to take his ministry out of Galilee and move it to Judea. Why? Because Judea is the center of the feast, but it's also the center of all religious life because that's where Jerusalem is. That's where the temple is. That's where the religious leadership is. In not so many words, this is the sentiment. It's one thing to perform these works in Galilee, but it's another thing entirely to perform them in Judea and in Jerusalem. Doubtless, they knew the fallout of his discourse on the bread of life at Capernaum. We read about that last time. Six months before this, most of his disciples had walked away and followed him no more. And so they reason that those disciples would again see his works and presumably commit to him once again. In their minds, this is what Jesus is doing. In their minds, Jesus is aspiring to a religious political office of Messiah. And so therefore, if you're going to to do that and be the one who leads the people against the Romans, you can't hide out in Galilee, but you have to win the city of Jerusalem. And what they're arguing is you can't event your agenda if you just stay in Galilee. And in verse 5, here's the crux of the issue. The reason they say all of this, and the reason that they they ask him or, or call on him to do this, is because they do not believe in him. Throughout the book of John, what you see time and again is that those who demand signs and public displays from Jesus are those who do not have a right right relationship with him. Those are the ones who always say things like we looked in chapter 6, if you really are the Messiah, basically prove it. Here, the the brothers who don't believe in him, hey, if you really want to do what you say you're going to do, you need to come and do these signs and wonders. And this is the point, again, that miracles do not produce faith. And here, again, is a sad but necessary truth for us. Proximity to the things of God does not guarantee personal faith in God. Proximity to the things of God does not guarantee the faith of God, faith in God. Jesus' brothers grew up with him. They observed his life and his signs. They heard his message, yet they had closed their hearts to the gospel that he proclaimed. Just because You know things about God. And just because you have been around the things of God or those close to you who serve God, that does not mean that you believe God and you serve him. As John has shown over and over again, it is a personal belief that you must place in Jesus alone. Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, they pushed for him to to perform more miracles and continue to prove himself. And it would not be until after the resurrection that at least some of them would believe in him. Acts 1.14 says, These all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Two of Jesus' brothers, James and Jude, would go on to write two letters that are included in the New Testament which bear their names. James also became the head of the Jerusalem church. And we would see that God's grace is evident in their lives that they had a further opportunity to place their faith in Jesus. But this is a reminder to us where we live in our day and age as well. 
Just because you've grown up around the things of God does not make you a follower of God. Just because you've heard the things of God does not make you a follower of God. Just because you've never said, well, I I don't outright disagree with that does not make you a follower of God. You, You can only become a follower, a disciple of God by placing your personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And today is the day of salvation. Because we do not know when that opportunity will not be afforded to us again because our life here may end. And here, Jesus then shows his brothers that there is a higher agenda of his life and purpose as he follows the will of his Father. Not only do we have the disbelieving advice, now we have the differing agendas that have manifested themselves in the life of Jesus and his brothers. We see the rejection of the world that Jesus uh, talks about here in verses 6 and 7. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it and its works that that its works are evil. Though his own family was skeptical of him, notice, Jesus does not allow that to dictate his own actions. Why? Because Jesus is not on a mission to please man. Jesus is on a mission to serve the Father and the, and the timing of the Father. Therefore, Jesus' time to go to the feast had not yet come. He says, my time has not yet come. Now, there, there's, two, there's two ways of, of looking at this statement here. One, in the immediate context, we have to understand what he's saying here is my time to go to the feast has not yet come. In the broadest term, in the broadest view of that statement, Jesus' time had not yet come to give himself as a ransom for many, and it would not come until the next great feast, the Passover. However, That restriction, Jesus says, does not apply to his brothers. He says, but your time is always ready. Because as those who did not believe in Jesus, they could go wherever they liked, whenever they liked. And Jesus says here that the world cannot hate you. What Jesus is talking about here, when he uses the term the world, he's talking about the inherent sinful, evil practices of the system of the world. And it cannot hate them because they are part of that system. The Jews though they were religious, were firmly fixed in the sinful system of the world because they rejected Jesus Christ. Jesus had come then and exposed the sinful actions of this world. He shone the light of himself, showing what they did was wrong. And you will find out that the world hates to have its sin exposed by the truth. The message of God's truth does not naturally fall onto good ground in Satan's domain. And you can turn on the news, poke around online, or listen to those around you to find out that there is a constant lashing out against the truth in our culture today. Our world tries to reinvent truth all the time. Why? Because truth reveals sin. And sin means that there is someone holding a standard of accountability over my life. That's what sin implies, right? That there, if there is something wrong that I am doing, there is someone who is telling me that that is wrong. And I have to answer to that person or being or whoever it is, right, in their minds. And we know that is the truth, that we all answer to God. 
Jesus came to earth proclaiming the truth of God, calling those who had sinned into account. The religious leaders vehemently responded. Others deserted, wanting nothing to disturb their lives. As one author said it, the world and its system is the enemy of God. It is the devil's lair for sinners. It is his lure for saints. See, sin has permeated this world that we live in. It has gripped the hearts of all who live here. And we must continue to give the truth of the gospel in love, seeking to reach the lost with the good news of Jesus Christ. And no matter what lies you have believed or told yourself, your only hope for true peace is found in Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what Jesus did. He exposed sin, and he showed people the hope found only in him. He did not condemn mankind to damnation only, but offered a way to be redeemed in himself. Jesus shows us the disease of sin that we have and the only cure available in himself. And you know what? That makes him, that makes, by the way, the greatest difference between him and the religious leaders of his day. The, take the Pharisees, for example. Oh, they love to expose the sinfulness of other people. And leave them right there. You know why? Because that made them look really good. I am righteous because I do X, Y, Z. Fill in the blank. These laws. You're not because you don't. That's no message of hope. That's a message of prideful exaltation. Jesus did not go soft on sin, but he showed that the only cure is in himself. He is the way the truth, and the life. The world is the bastion of sin from which souls need to be saved. But the effects of the world, however, are not limited to unbelievers because the world continues to pull at Christians as we seek to live lives pleasing to God. And many a disciple has gotten off track chasing some fleeting pleasure of the sinful temporal world. And I would ask you to show a, for a show of hands, but I think I, I think I could safely say that we'd all raise our hands if you would say, hey, I, I'm a follower of God, but I felt the pull of the world in my life. I felt the pull of sin in my heart. I felt the pull of the system that I live in. I've gotten off track. I've taken my eyes off Jesus. I haven't walked the way that I should walk. And by God's grace, he's convicted me of that and brought me back. But even as we say that, there may be even some here who are here today who you know you're off track. You know you're tolerating sin in your life. You know that you're not doing the things that you're supposed to do or doing things that you shouldn't do based on what God's word says. And you continue to love the world. John would later write in 1 John chapter 2, love not the world, the other things that are in the world. For any who does not love the, whoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We need the conviction of God to draw us back to himself and give us victory over sin. Jesus' message of truth meant that he was an enemy in the eyes of many, so therefore the time was not yet right for him to go. And so therefore he would remain in Galilee. He says in verse 8, you'll go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. 
since Jesus' brothers were no disciples of his, he tells them they should go on to the feast. That he would not go with them in the inevitable caravan of people for the reasons that were mentioned. And if you remember back in chapter 6, when the mob there wished to make him the, the Messiah, it is very possible that those in the area of Galilee on the roads would again seek to make him king by force. And that would incite quite the scene in Jerusalem as they came near. And so, Jesus would not go to Jerusalem yet. His brothers advised and perhaps expected him to go to the feast with such a show of power, but Jesus would not do that. Because, he says, his time had not fully come. Now when it did, he would lay down his life as the Lamb of God. Until that time, he would avoid that which would advance God's plan too early. And so, he remained in Galilee while his brothers continued ahead to Jerusalem. And I want to stop right here and let us observe that this is yet again another show of Jesus' power as God. When Jesus would give himself as the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God given to take away the sins of the world, he would give his life. No man would take it from him. Right? It would not be the schemes of man. It would not be the brute strength and force of them. It would not even be the one who would betray him that made him do that, but he would give himself willingly to sacrifice for our sin. And we see that even in here. But then lastly, we see that as the the, the feast continues and, and gets underway, we see the debated merits of Jesus there in the city of Jerusalem. In verse 10, we see Jesus' departure, but when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Eventually, Jesus does leave for Jerusalem for the feast, as was expected of him, but he does so covertly. By the time Jesus leaves to go to the feast, it's most likely that most of the, not all of those roads are deserted because they're all expected to be at the feast. Some believe that when you go to Luke chapter 9 and you read of Jesus there passing through Samaria, that this is when Jesus passed through Samaria, which would have been another way for him to avoid many people because Jews don't go through Samaria. We talked about that in John chapter 4. Jesus travels and then arrives in the city in secret, continuing to obey the Father's plan. And we know that this is the last time he will leave Galilee before the cross. And as he arrives in Jerusalem, we see the ongoing debate surrounding him, verses 11 through 13. This is the question that is asked, where is Jesus? Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now, John once again refers to the religious hierarchy here in verse 11 with the term the Jews because he makes a distinction between them and the other people who have gathered there. These are the ones who were seeking to kill him, whom Jesus had avoided with his time in Galilee. They expected him to be here at the feast. And when they do not see him, They now wish to know what has happened to him. Perhaps they have heard of his workings and his teachings in Galilee during this time. And while the religious leaders seek him, others begin to debate Jesus and his merits. We see here that it says here that there was much complaining about him. And again, this is the idea of murmuring. It's this this low um, tones. Some say... There are two sides here. Some say that he's a good man. 
while others claim that he is deceiving the people or leading them astray. I don't want to point out here that both of these views are wrong, by the way. Jesus is not merely a good man. He is the Son of God and God himself. He is the Messiah, the Lord of creation, the initiator of salvation, and a good man could not claim to be God as Jesus has clearly done. Again, see John chapter 5 to see the things that John said, uh, Jesus said about himself. Nor was Jesus one who led people astray or deceived them, because if so, he could not have performed the authenticating signs that John records. And the debate of that day still rages in the hearts and lives of many people today. They do not truly know who Jesus is. You ask people on the street at random, who is Jesus? And you'll get a myriad of answers of who Jesus is. But ascribing to him anything less than God's son and the spotless lamb offered for salvation is wrong. Jesus is Lord. And he is the only hope of our salvation. It's interesting to note, no one in Jerusalem taking part of that debate uttered these things too loudly. You can almost see the quiet whispers and people talking about these things amongst themselves, but with ever an eye towards the religious leadership because the Sanhedrin, the, 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 the ruling body there of Jerusalem, had not yet um, given their formal judgment on Jesus. Though the religious leaders were seeking to kill him, they had not come out publicly and declared these things yet. So the people of Israel do not wish to be on the wrong side of an issue, uh, of this issue in the eyes of the religious leaders. Because if, they, if it comes down that Jesus isn't good and Jesus isn't the Messiah, then they don't want to be caught out here saying that he was because that has consequences on their lives. And that's the difference between being a disciple of Jesus and one who has thoughts about Jesus, whether good or bad. Because the truth is, embracing Jesus as your Savior, embracing Jesus as your Lord is going to put you on the wrong side of a lot of people because of the world we live in. But you can stand firm in who Jesus is because you are standing on the truth of God and his word no matter what others may say. The world is no friend to the things of God. And so we must stand with God. The time for Jesus' final work was not yet, but it would come. And in that time, Jesus would be in the right time and the right place to carry out his ordained mission from God. But until then, he would continue to call followers to himself that they may enjoy new and eternal life in him. Jesus' declarations of the truth of God exposed man's sin and would deliver God's plan of redemption at the perfect time. And so here's the question. What do you think of Jesus? Jesus' own family did not believe in who he was until much, much later. But here, they show the lack of this belief and they demand more signs. And a sure sign of unbelief is the false notion that you need more proof. God has filled our lives with the proof that he exists, that he may be known, and that he has given us his son. 
And those in Jerusalem revealed their thoughts as well. Some wanted him dead. Others thought he was merely a good man. Some thought he was doing a dishonest thing. But the only opinion about Jesus that matters is the truth. You must come to embrace this truth for yourself if you were to truly, truly enjoy eternal fellowship with God. The world is uncomfortable with the message of Jesus because it confronts our sinful selves. And Christians, we are ever prone as well to the pulls of this world because of our sinful flesh that we still live with. We need deep discipleship in the things of God. You and I need continued challenge from God's word and growth in him by his spirit no matter how long you've walked with God. And if you cut yourself off from the body of God, if you cut yourself off from discipling relationships, you are cutting yourself off from something that is so crucial to your life as a believer. And a place like Beaverton Baptist Church is where you can find these types of relationships to help to grow you in the faith. Let me be very clear. A person will not save you. A person will not make you more spiritual. The Word of God does that, and He uses people in that in that journey of our lives. But we need one another. And whatever it is you need, whatever your questions, God's word has the answers. He is the way, the truth, the life. He is the Lord over all. And he came at the right time and did things in God's way that we may enjoy him fully. And all I simply would ask you today is this. What is it that God is doing in your life? Has he shown you your need for salvation himself? Has he shown you as a Christian the need for for greater discipleship in your own life? Has he shown you sin in your life that he, he has exposed clearly and wants you to make right? Whatever that is, would you run to him? And would you find that hope in him? And however, we can be of help here today if there's something I can do Someone else here can do to to be a help and ministry and a blessing to you, to take you to the Word of God, to sit with you and pray with you and show you these things. We'd love to do that. It would be a privilege and a joy to do so. But I encourage you to do business with God today. You know, as we pray here in a minute, would you take time there to speak to the Lord about what He's doing in your heart? And if you have questions and would like to talk further about these things as soon as our service is open today, Our invitation is open to you to find help and hope today. Father, we thank you for your word and its power to change our lives. We thank you for the ministry of Jesus Christ to redeem us from our sin. Lord, we thank you for the power that he displayed over all things, that even he would not advance that timeline of God the Father prematurely, would do things in your perfect timing, in your perfect way, that he would bring many sons to glory. And Lord, we ask that you would speak to our hearts today. You would show us our sin. You would show us the Savior. And Lord, the greatest cry of any disciple is that we wouldn't be left alone, but that we would be matured and grown in you each and every day. Lord, we can't do that if we're tied up with the world, if we're tied up with our sin, and if we refuse to make things right. God, I pray that you would convict hearts today.
that you would rebuild our love for you. You rekindle these things. May you receive the honor and the glory for what you will do today in our hearts. In your name we pray.